There's no company that Silicon Valley is going to conjure up that's going to go out there and throw fairy dust and make everything sustainable and make investors billions of dollars. The only solution that I see is people getting out in the streets and demanding climate just farm policy, farm policy that takes care of workers and incentivizes farms to do things like crop rotations. Those are the things that can get us through climate change and that can help draw down carbon to slow down climate change. The market ain't gonna get us there. I'm Anna LaPay, and this is Real Food Reads, the podcast from Real Food Media, where we talk to authors of some of the most interesting books today on the intersections of food, politics, and culture. I am thrilled to have guest hosted this edition of the podcast in conversation with veteran food journalist and dear friend Tom Philpot, talking about his new book, Perilous Bounty. Tom has been writing about food politics for as long as I can remember, and at Mother Jones since 2011. A former farmer and finance reporter, Tom brings wisdom from both into his writing. I loved reading Perilous Bounty and probing him with questions about it for this podcast. I hope you do too. So your book is about farming in Iowa and California, but really it's a book about the future of farming wherever you grow food and the future of eating wherever you live. I'd love for you to explain why you chose these two states, Iowa and California. Yeah, so that was a fairly simple decision for me because, you know, basically if you look at a typical American dinner plate, you've got a big piece of meat at the center, some vegetables and maybe some kind of fruit sort of thing at the side. That's sort of the basis of the American diet. Most of the fruits and vegetables that we consume come from California. Um, it's by far the biggest U.S. producer of fruits and vegetables. And then in terms of meat, almost all of the meat produced in the United States, not all of it, let's say probably greater than 95% of it comes from, you know, giant feedlots where they feed animals, corn and soybeans. Those corn and soybeans by and large come from the Midwest, the corn belt with Iowa at the center. And so what I was doing there is basically looking at the two key nodes of food production in the U.S., and sort of kicking the tires a little bit and seeing how they're doing ecologically. Yeah, and I think when you kick the, kick those tires, how they're doing ecologically is really not so good. And I want to stick with that idea for a second, which is that I think one of the things I was really struck by that you did so well in this book is to really probe these kind of two fundamental ecological questions, which is what is happening to water and what is happening to soil and framing both water and soil as non-renewable resources. And I think for a lot of people, we clearly understand when we talk about something like fossil fuels, that that's non-renewable. But I think for a lot of people, when you think about water or you think about soil, it, it doesn't kind of click in your mind in the same way that these are resources that we should be treating very carefully. And so I, I'd like to dig into both. And I thought maybe you could start with water in California. Yeah, so water in California you know, it's actually fairly abundant for a place that has a Mediterranean climate. So a Mediterranean climate is a fairly rare thing on the earth. It's a place where you get really, really long, hot summers, relatively mild to extremely mild winters. And so those are great places for growing food if you can get water, because they also tend to be pretty dry, have pretty sporadic rainfall. 
And California is gifted on that front in two ways. One of them is that it's got the Sierra Nevada mountains, this, you know, long spine of mountains that basically goes up the entire eastern flank of the state. And the Sierra Nevadas basically catch all the weather generated in the South Pacific in the winter months in the form of snow. And these sort of storms hit the mountains, precipitation drops as snow and creates this giant snowpack which conveniently melts in the spring and can provide water for the rest of the summer. And then you also have this resource in this uh, Central Valley, which runs alongside the Sierra Nevadas, that years and years of the snowmelt just sort of cascading down the mountains into rivers before the United States took over uh, California in the 1850s, created this incredible aquifer. You know, water seeps down and percolates downward into these underground caverns and stores this huge amount of water. And so these two things, the Sierra Nevadas and the sort of underground aquifers that it helped create, they give California this almost perfect uh, situation for growing fruits and vegetables because you got long summers, basically year-round growing, and then access to plenty of water. The problem being that California agriculture has gotten so big and so productive that it's essentially outgrown both of these sources of water. And climate change is making that the Sierra Nevadas are getting less snow. We've already seen a demonstrable drop in snowpacks and there's bigger drops coming according to all the climate models. And so you're looking at a situation where this dream of year-round agriculture with plenty of water is coming to an end. Yeah, and where, as you're saying, outgrown, I mean, outgrown seems to be putting it mildly. I mean, you're talking in the book about regions of California that are overusing water to such an extent that you're actually seeing the ground actually starting to sink uh, and you're starting to see communities have to dig deeper and deeper for water and getting water tainted with arsenic. I mean, it's really at a level of overuse that there's simply no way to sustain it is what I gathered from reading your reporting. Yeah, that's exactly right. You know, we're, we're heading for a reckoning like it or not in California. Yeah, yeah. And and that reckoning, I, I feel like we're heading for as well in Iowa, of course, is a cautionary tale of what's happening in other states, too. But in Iowa, you know, again, as you say, you really focus on animal ag there. And in particular, in terms of the resource that you were kicking the tires on there, it was really soil. I wonder if you could just kind of explain how that soil loss is happening and why you feel like it's such a crisis. You know, as you know, Anna, what's happened in the Corn Belts over the past half century or so, is that there's been this incredible simplification of crop diversity. So, you know, farmers typically in the middle of the 20th century, micro corn, definitely corn. Corn has been ubiquitous in Iowa since the U.S. took it over. And even before it was grown by Native Americans uh, at a much in a much different way at a much different scale. But so a farmer might have corn, there would be oats, plenty of wheat, Soybeans started to come on around the middle of the century, and also hay crops for feed for both cattle and horses. And as a result of this biodiversity, there was typically over a lot of the ground in a place like Iowa, there was ground cover during the spring. And that's really important because when the area gets a lot of really strong late winter and early spring storms, 
And when you've got something growing in the land there, it basically holds it together. You've got vegetation above ground that buffers the power of the rain. You've got living roots that hold the soil together if there is some kind of a flood. Just this incredibly important resource for stopping erosion. But what's happened over the past half century is all of those other crops have gone away except for corn and soybeans. And these are two crops that are planted at the same time and that are harvested at the same time. And, uh, and they're planted in the spring. And in the months in between, you've essentially got bare ground. And so then when you get these really strong storms that you've got rain hitting and just explosive impact each drop has on soil, and then you've got the fact that there's nothing holding it in. There's no living roots holding it in. And what we've seen is just incredible erosion event after incredible erosion event in the Midwest. And what climate change has meant is that weather that starts deep in the Gulf of Mexico, as the water warms out there, as the air gets warmer, you're getting more water going into the atmosphere and dumping down there in the spring. And actually, I, I wrote... Um, most of my section on Iowa, I did the research in the spring and summer of 2019 when they had this incredible cataclysm of basically nonstop, really, really heavy rains and storms that caused massive, massive amounts of erosion. Basically, the mathematical error that we're seeing in erosion rates is based on the fact that the USDA doesn't count a kind of erosion that's called gully erosion. And that is when you get you know, such concentration of rains in slightly sloping fields that creates these sort of gashes in the land that represent disappeared soil. Basically, it's just carried off the land and into streams and ditches. And when you account for that, then you're looking at soil eroding at about 16 times faster than natural replacement instead of it being more like one-to-one. And so what that means is that just like in California, there's a race to the bottom of the aquifer happening. In Iowa, there's basically a race to the end of the soil. You can't keep uh, losing a resource at that rate before it finally goes away. And if you go visit Iowa in the spring, you'll see parts of the field where the soil has just eroded away, just little patches that are brown instead of black. And those are growing every year. And this simply can't go on forever. I want to talk about another ecological story that you write about in the book, uh, in addition to soil loss and abuse of water, uh, which is, you know, the story in Iowa about animal agriculture as well, and the feed used for intensive animal agriculture production. But you also introduce the reader to a term I'm assuming most people have never heard of, which is this term fecal equivalent. (laughs) And I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about that and apologies to any listener who might be enjoying a meal right now. Yeah, so I, I don't have the exact numbers in front of me, but I can explain the concept. So Iowa is a fairly sparsely populated place, right? So it's got, you know, Des Moines, which is a mid-sized city, is this metropolis, and it's got a bunch of small towns, but it doesn't have a huge population. Um, But it turns out that a pig produces significantly more waste, excrement, than a human does. And Iowa has got something like five or ten pigs for every person, And so you've got this huge population of pigs, much bigger than the human population, and you've got every one of them producing way more 
excrement than a human does. And so what you get is this giant torrent of pig shit and the need to do something with it. And there's this great researcher at University of Iowa named Chris Jones, who has put pencil to paper on this. And he'll compare, you know, certain counties in Iowa have the fecal equivalent of Mexico City, for example. It just boggles your mind. But I mean, it makes sense, right? Yeah. You have that one part in the book where you're talking about how rapidly pigs in these intensive production systems put on weight compared to like an infant child. And right, it's like you don't put that kind of weight on without having something come out the other end. That's exactly right. It's disgusting for us to think about right now and, and talk about, but Imagine living there next to one of these facilities, and I'm sure you've been next to one of these, and the stench of it will literally knock you over. It's just this sort of putrid stench. That's a major problem. There's also emissions in the air. This stuff has noxious fumes in it that people should not breathe. Uh, It's been documented that it causes things like asthma and other respiratory problems. But then there's this issue of what do you do with it? And... Basically, agriculture for a long time has been based on the idea of recycling nutrients. And so there is this impulse to put it on soil. But it's one thing to have like an appropriate number of of pigs on a piece of land where you can sort of effectively recycle their waste into the land and you can have this great resource. But they've gone way beyond that. And so what you get is way too much manure going on way too little land and massive runoff. I don't know if you've ever gone to visit the sort of waterways of Iowa and like been taken around lakes. You will see blue-green algae blooms that have a very toxic substance in them. Not only can you not drink the water, but your dog can't go for a swim in that water because it's just so, so toxic. But in addition to that, it's just full of E. coli. And E. coli, so the Algae blooms are fed by phosphorus, and that could come from fertilizer or it could come from the pig manure itself. But then they're they're just sort of loaded with E. coli, and that's definitely a result of the pig manure. And so it's just completely fouling the water. And um, just like in California, where in the Central Valley, the really heavy growing region, the water is basically undrinkable because it has so much nitrates and other chemicals in it. It's the same in Iowa where the sort of, you know, people who live there can't drink uh, water from the tap. That's the real impact of having a, a fecal equivalent population that's way higher than your human population. Right. Yeah. And it's, of course, as you're saying, not just affecting these waterways in rural Iowa, but I remember going to Des Moines and, and talking with folks there that were working on the municipal water quality and how impacted the cities are by these incredible amounts of pollution in the water. And one of the themes I felt like came across really clearly in your book is this incredible monopoly power that we're seeing in the economies around food. And I feel like there is this moment culturally where we're actually starting to, I think, reckon with what it has done to a whole range of different sectors to have such monopoly control. And I'm wondering if you want to talk a little bit about how you see it impacting farmers and food policy, and then we can take it from there about what we might be able to do about it. Yeah. So in, in chapter four of my book, I, I kind of dive into this question and I asked myself, you know, who benefits from this system? 
this sort of corn and soybean duopoly in Iowa. And I, you know, I sort of go through and I say, well, consumers don't so much because the diet that it generates is literally ruining our health. Like we eat too much meat and corn and soybeans produce the great bulk of fats, industrial fats, like, you know, McDonald's fries is French fries and soybean oil. Corn oil is another big product that is used in industrial food. Corn sweeteners of various kinds, not just high fructose corn syrup, make up a huge portion of the sweeteners used in soft drinks and all the other junky foods that are marketed so heavily that you've written so eloquently about in the past. And all that stuff comes from corn and soybeans. So consumers, despite the fact that everything is so cheap, aren't benefiting from this. And I go through a long discussion of how farmers aren't benefiting from it because if everyone's producing corn and soybeans and they're also in competition with farmers in Brazil and in Argentina and Ukraine who are also all producing corn and soybeans, you get as low prices. And for most of the past five years and really for the, most of the past 40 years, the prices of corn and soybeans have been below the cost of production, uh, leaving farmers you know, basically reliant on government programs for profitability. So farmers aren't doing so great. So, you know, who is benefiting? And what I tease out in the book is that at every point in the chain for farmers, the people who sell them seeds and pesticides, the companies who sell them fertilizers, the companies that buy their corn and soybeans and turn them into all these products that I'm talking about, you know, corn syrup and soybean fat, the companies that buy the corn and soybeans and turn it into meat. Every one of these industries is dominated by two or three or four companies. So essentially 100% of the value that is produced by devoting this huge piece of beautiful former prairie land in the Corn Belt, almost all the benefits that are generated from ruining it as we are, as I show in the book, we're ruining it, you know, come down to this small interlocking set of companies, companies like Bayer, which bought Monsanto, companies like Syngenta, you know, meatpacking giants like Tyson and JBS, they're the ones that are getting the value from this and, you know, making billions of dollars for their shareholders and being sort of smart, diabolical companies. They take some of these windfall profits and invest it in things like campaign finance and lobbying. The agribusiness lobby is one of the biggest lobbies in the country. It's one of the most powerful lobbies in the country. And what they get from this multi-billion dollar annual investment is an essential monopoly on making food and ag policy in Washington. And so the system is self-regenerating. Right. Yeah. I mean, we are on the cusp of a new administration and possibly a whole new set of leaders to really explore what might be possible in a farm bill that's actually responsive to the kind of ecological impacts you're describing and the economic impacts to farmers. And I wonder if you could dig into that a little bit. Obviously, it's a huge question. Yeah. Um, basically, I show in the book, and, and by no means the first person to have shown it, that you could do agriculture in the Midwest in a much smarter way. You could just sort of essentially re-diversify the crop mix. You could take a bunch of animals out of these, you know, huge confinements. I think you need to reduce meat production dramatically, but also change the way that it's produced and bring animals back onto the land would be incredibly ecologically beneficial. And you could, you know, essentially grow food in the Midwest for people to eat instead of just inputs for this sort of global meat industry. 
and, and so a lot of the, of the research that I cite suggests that it would be just as profitable, if not more profitable for farmers, because it would require far fewer inputs. They'd have to buy way fewer pesticides and fertilizers. And so that raises the question of, you know, why don't they switch over? And I think that the crop insurance is one of the key reasons, because the way the crop insurance is set up now, if they grow these program crops, corn and soybeans uh, and a couple of others, they're guaranteed a portion of the previous five years average revenue a huge portion. So if the, if the price drops by a lot or if there's a disaster, they get a, a large portion of their money anyway, and that sort of keeps them in the game. And if they do something weird, like I'm going to start growing a portion of my um, land in oats, and I'm going to start doing pastured hogs instead of um, confinement hogs, that just completely throws off their insurance situation. It brings them a lot of risk. And while once they figure it out, it'll probably be a lot more beneficial and a lot more profitable for them getting to that point, going through that four and five seasons to uh, figure out a new system, they fear with justification that they would lose their shirt. And that sort of keeps this inertia in the Midwest and keeps people from trying out these new things. And so no farm bill in our lifetime has challenged this, but there are openings now you're right. I mean, we're on the cusp as you and I are having this conversation in this particular moment of really potentially heading in a really different direction and having leadership that could bring us there. So I wanted to take us back to California. You know, one of the big things you talk about, of course, in California is the state's approach to water use. And of course, water politics has been a defining feature of the state for a very, very long time. Uh, but I, I wonder if you want to also talk about one of the other aspects of water that, to be honest, had not been on my radar as a Californian. I, I grew up here and was very aware of the lurking threat of earthquakes. And more recently, of course, raising kids here, the not so lurking threats of climate change driven wildfires. And now that I've read your book, I realize that there is another lurking threat, which is flooding. And so I want to have you talk about that for a minute, but really talk about it from a solutions perspective. You know, if you could wave your magic wand, you know, what would it look like to actually prepare us for that threat? Yeah. So the flood chapter is the most terrifying thing I've ever written. It turns out that in 1861, when the U.S had just taken over California. It had become a U.S. state a few years earlier. And the state was sort of going through the bust of the gold rush. San Francisco is already a pretty big population center. And figuring out what to do next, it, uh, it starts to rain. And literally for 40 days and 40 nights, it doesn't stop. And it goes into January of the next year. So there is snow in the Sierra Nevadas at this time, and this rain melts a lot of the snow. And so basically a combination of the rain and the snow melt creates this enormous flood in the entire Central Valley. And if you're not from California and you don't know the Central Valley, it stretches from not very far north of Los Angeles, maybe 60 miles north of Los Angeles, all the way up really close to the Oregon border. So this is a valley that sort of goes through the state alongside the Sierra Nevada mountains. And this whole thing was under 20 feet of water. And so, yeah, I mean, it had lots and lots of short-term impacts, including basically rearranging California agriculture forever because 
California agriculture at that time had been in the Central Valley. It had been Mexican nationals who were given U.S. citizenship as part of the deal to take over California. And they owned a lot of that land down there. And it was basically fairly low intensity cattle grazing, mainly for the leather market, although there was a rising market for beef in San Francisco. And these white settlers who weren't happy about the bust of the gold rush are looking at this land and wanting to get their hands on it. Like, how did we not grab this land too? Who are these interlopers who own it? And the flood actually completely wiped out the Mexican uh, landowners who ended up having to sell their land to these white settlers for pennies in the dollar because their entire cattle herds were washed out. And they ended up being um, essentially ranch hands for the white settlers. And it basically was the point where California agriculture in that area switches from cattle to growing row crops because no one had the money to restock the cattle. And so you start getting wheat and other row crops and the whole quest to sort of tame the water in the area to you know pump the groundwater and to channel the Sierra Nevada snowmelt really comes into uh, focus at that time and sort of sets California on its modern trajectory. Um, even though it had that huge impact, it largely vanished from the state's imagination. And there's this great researcher at UCLA named Daniel Swain. And what he finds is that the likelihood of an 1861-like event is more likely than not uh, in the next 30 years, um, which is, you know, I think just terrifying. Right. And certainly how one prepares for it individually is one thing, but as a state, I mean, certainly not to just kind of close your eyes, close your ears and say, yeah. like, we don't want to, <laughs> let's pretend it's not going to happen. And there has been some work on that at the state level. The U.S. Geological Survey did a study on it, and there has been some progress. At least policymakers should be aware of it now. Um on the national scale, because of the threat of increasing droughts and increasing floods, what I argue in my book is that other states need to start ramping up fruit and vegetable production, preparing for the inevitability of California greatly reducing its because of these factors. And a giant flood like that could take out um, food production in the Central Valley for a few seasons and take lots and lots of time and effort to rebuild. And so I think, you know, making more redundant systems of something you've been working at your whole career and is how to beef up local and regional food production systems. And I think that effort becomes existential when you think about the threats facing California. Like it isn't, oh, you know, I get to go to the farmer's market on Saturday, so I feel good about myself. It isn't that sort of thing. It's like, how do we make our food system resilient to climate change, which we know is coming? I think it's extremely important in that regard. In the book, I feel like you're basically calling out to all the departments of agriculture and states across the country. You know, California should not be growing all of the broccoli. Yeah. We, we talk in climate circles about this idea of a just transition. Yes. And I'm curious what that looks like for California, where we want to support our farmers. But you're right. It's not sustainable to have us producing, you know, what I don't have the stats in front of me, but, you know, 90 percent of the carrots or, you know, these vast quantities of certain. Yes. Products, right. So wondering how you would talk about what that looks like to, to start shifting that and to build some of that resilience and redundancy in. Yeah. So I think the key thing in California would be to stop gearing policy to generating massive surpluses for export 
there, there are large sections in the book about the um, constant striving to convert land in the Central Valley from row crops to almonds. And what's driving that is actually this idea of producing giant almond crops to export uh, all over the world, to Europe, to China, to other parts of Asia. And, um, and so that economic incentive, because almonds are a super high value crop, um, they're very, very profitable once you make the huge investments required to put them in. Um, they also harden water demand. And what that means is that, you know, if you're growing broccoli, you can fallow your land in a, in a really bad year. Like there's not very much water this year. I'm just going to grow less broccoli and I'm going to use less water. I'm going to adjust to the situation by using less water. If you're an almond farmer and you've invested millions of dollars in your almond grove, you can't make that decision because if you stop watering your almonds, they die and you lose your investment. And so it just keeps this pressure on the water there. And I would, I would say that reconceiving California agriculture as a regional powerhouse. So, you know, there's obviously a, a large population density on the West Coast and in the Southwest. And there's no reason that in a regional food system, California shouldn't supply that and make that more of an emphasis. And, you know, I think that vegans will come at me and say, you know, you're so hard on almonds, but you let the dairies get off scot-free. Vegans and the almond industry. I feel like yeah. I definitely saw an uptick in ads from the almond industry when you started coming after them around water use. No doubt. Yes. And so that, that's a totally legitimate point. Um, just the, the grotesque amount of industrial dairy happening in the San Joaquin Valley and down in the um, Imperial Valley is just ridiculous. Milk is this incredibly overproduced product. We, we produce way too much of it. That drives the prices down for small family dairies. I would say the key for California is to downsize agriculture to the level of its water resources. It's, it's really as simple as that. And that means, you know, not these enormous, giant and ever-growing groves of almonds, you know, literally put in to provide snacks to well-off middle-class consumers in China, totally not feeding the world in any important way reorient all of that to a system that operates within its ecological um, means and can be an incredible source of food for the entire West and Southwest. And obviously still have enough to send to other parts of the country, but just not as much as there is now. I mean, I think that is the imperative for California. And it doesn't have to be a big hit to California farmers unless you're like a, you know, insurance fund that has... 20,000 acres of almonds that you invested millions of dollars in with the expectation of getting all the water you could ever need to grow almonds for the growing global middle class. Those kinds of investors are going to have to lose their shirts and actual farmers growing food for people to eat. The state should figure out ways to support them. So in the book, one of the points you make is about the influence of investors in land. And I'm curious, there's been this emergence of these new investment entities that have built themselves as part of the climate solution or helping investors mm. be part of sustainability in closing. So this is your, your final moment here, Tom. But if you want to just say a little bit about what you found as you dug into that and how this financialization of land is another critical question that we need to be grappling with and how that impacts food and sustainability. 
Yeah. So I used to be a financial writer. I used to work at a trade publication in lower Manhattan that covered financial services industry. And one thing that I learned at that time is that the industry really leans on what they call stories um, when they're pitching investments. And so they tell stories um, and there's a compelling story that is rising up for farmland. And the story goes like this. It goes that population is going to move from six to nine billion by 2050. According to the FAO, we're going to have to increase food production by 50%. And so you've got that aspect. And then you've got the old aspect about how they're not growing more land. There's only a certain amount of arable land in the world and it's we're losing it to desertification and urbanization as well. And so the idea is that you want to get in on farmland now, sort of get in early because it's going to become more and more valuable going forward. And so that's the story they're telling investors. And it's a compelling one. You know, farmland is now an asset class that you can look up. There's an index for it. And all that means is that it sort of helps investors get a grip on it and it helps uh, financial advisors sell this asset class. And the problem is that there are profits to be made with farmland because you can get, you know, if you own an almond grove in California, you can make profits in, uh, in two ways. One way is that your land could appreciate in value. And then the other way is that it's throwing off this income every year uh, in terms of this highly profitable crop that you're growing. And so there is this push into, let's say, you know, almonds and pistachios in California. The problem is that if you're going to do things in a sustainable way, there's just not as much profit in it for you. And that is going to reduce the value of the farmland. It's just not an enticing thing for investors to do. And here's one thing that I've learned uh, in my career, you know, starting with being on the farm itself and also, you know, diving into agricultural economics over the years is that farming is by definition a low margin activity that is very much at the whims of, you know, storms and droughts and things like that. You know, you plant a seed and you hope it comes up and becomes a crop and there's lots of competition. You're oftentimes a price taker. You don't get to make your own prices. And so it's a really, really low margin activity. And when I see for-profit companies moving into that space and saying, hey, you know, we're a startup with X number of seed dollars from Silicon Valley, and we're going to make a profit by, you know, intervening in the food system to push it in a more sustainable direction. I get very, very suspicious because there are so few profits in the area. And, you know, right now they would be taking them from agribusiness firms, but agribusiness firms make profits by screwing farmers and selling them chemicals. What are you going to be selling farmers that's going to be generating a lot of profit for you? And that's my problem with these private companies that happen to be started by agribusiness execs um, that want to come in and create a private carbon market. And, you know, how are you going to pay back your investors from a private carbon market if there are so few margins in this area? Like, who's that profit coming out of? And all this is to say that to me, I think that farming is definitely something that requires government intervention. Like if there aren't enough profits in sustainable agriculture to make anyone switch over to sustainable agriculture, 
there's got to be a sort of public government approach that incentivizes you to do things that improve the carbon content of your soil, that improve the nutritional quality of the food that you produce, which you're currently not compensated for. No one's going to get rich off that. There's no company that Silicon Valley is going to conjure up that's going to go out there and throw fairy dust and make everything sustainable and make investors billions of dollars. That really, really does come down to policy. And that's why the real fight isn't making some startup do the right thing. The real fight is making Congress and the president do the right thing. Really, the only solution that I see is people getting out in the streets and demanding climate just farm policy, farm policy that takes care of workers and incentivizes farms to do things like crop rotations, cover crops, you know, mixing up animal and crop agriculture in a way that makes sense. And those are the things that can get us through climate change and that can help draw down carbon to slow down climate change. And the market ain't going to get us there. I'm Anna LaPay, founder of Real Food Media, and thank you again for tuning in. Special thanks are due to the Writers Retreat Mesa Refuge, where Tom crafted some of Perilous Bounty. You can join our book club and find out about future selections, author interviews, and other resources at realfoodmedia.org. To listen to Real Food Reads and our sister podcast, Foodtopias, look for Real Food Media wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love to hear from you. You can support our work by leaving us a rating or a review wherever you listen. It really makes a difference.